Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, The Valley of Fear. Part 1, Chapters 3 and 4, as we continue Arthur Conan Doyle's fourth novel, The Valley of Fear, which is a Sherlock Holmes adventure. And now, Chapter 3, The Tragedy of Burlstone. Now, for a moment, I will ask leave to remove my own insignificant personality and to describe events which occurred before we arrived upon the scene by the light of knowledge which came to us afterwards. Only in this way can I make the reader appreciate the people concerned and the strange setting in which their fate was cast. The village of Burlstone is a small and very ancient cluster of half-timbered cottages on the northern border of the county of Sussex. For centuries it had remained unchanged, but within the last few years its picturesque appearance and situation have attracted a number of well-to-do residents, whose villas peep out from the woods around. These woods are locally supposed to be the extreme fringe of the great Weald Forest, which thins away until it reaches the northern Chalk Downs. A number of small shops have come into being to meet the wants of the increased population, so there seems some prospect that Burlstone may soon grow from an ancient village into a modern town. It is the center for a considerable area of country, since Tunbridge Wells, the nearest place of importance, is ten or twelve miles to the eastward, over the borders of Kent. About half a mile from the town, standing in an old park famous for its huge beech trees, is the ancient manor house of Burlstone. Part of this venerable building dates back to the time of the First Crusade, when Hugo de Capus built a fortalice in the center of the estate, which had been granted to him by the Red King. This was destroyed by fire in 1543, and some of its smoke-blackened cornerstones were used when, in Jacobean times, a brick country house rose upon the ruins of the feudal castle. The manor house, with its many gables and its small diamond-paned windows, was still as much as the builder had left it in the early 17th century. Of the double moats which had guarded its more warlike predecessor, the outer had been allowed to dry up and served the humble function for a kitchen garden. The inner one was still there, and lay forty feet in length, though now only a few feet in depth, round the whole house. A small stream fed it and continued beyond it, so that the sheet of water, though turbid, was never ditch-like or unhealthy. The ground-floor windows were within a foot of the surface of the water. The only approach to the house was over a drawbridge, the chains and windlass of which had long been rusted and broken. The latest tenants of the manor-house had, however, with characteristic energy, set this right, and the drawbridge was not only capable of being raised, but actually was raised every evening and lowered every morning. By thus renewing the custom of the old feudal days, the manor-house was converted into an island during the night, a fact which had a very direct bearing upon the mystery which was soon to engage the attention of all England. The house had been untenanted for some years, and was threatening to molder into a picturesque decay when the Douglases took possession of it. This family consisted of only two individuals, John Douglas and his wife. Douglas was a remarkable man, both in character and in person. In age he may have been about fifty, with a strong-jawed, rugged face, a grizzling mustache, peculiarly keen gray eyes, and a wiry, vigorous figure which had lost nothing of the strength and activity of youth. He was cheery and genial to all, but somewhat offhand in his manners, 
giving the impression that he had seen life in social strata on some far lower horizon than the county society of Sussex. Yet, though looked at with some curiosity and reserve by his more cultivated neighbors, he soon acquired a great popularity among the villagers, subscribing handsomely to all local objects, and attending their smoking concerts and other functions, where, having a remarkably rich tenor voice, he was always ready to oblige with an excellent song. He appeared to have plenty of money, which was said to have been gained in the California gold fields, and it was clear from his own talk and that of his wife that he had spent a part of his life in America. The good impression which had been produced by his generosity and by his democratic manners was increased by a reputation gained for utter indifference to danger. Though a wretched writer, he turned out at every meet and took the most amazing falls in his determination to hold his own with the best. When the vicarage caught fire, he distinguished himself also by the fearlessness with which he re-entered the building to save property after the local fire brigade had given it up as impossible. Thus it came about that John Douglas of the manor house had within five years won himself quite a reputation in Burlstone. His wife, too, was popular with those who had made her acquaintance, though, after the English fashion, the callers upon a stranger who settled in the county without introductions were few and far between. This mattered the less to her, as she was retiring by disposition, and very much absorbed, to all appearance, in her husband and her domestic duties. It was known that she was an English lady who had met Mr. Douglas in London, he being at that time a widower. She was a beautiful woman, tall, dark, and slender, some twenty years younger than her husband, a disparity which seemed in no wise to mar the contentment of their family life. It was remarked sometimes, however, by those who knew them best, that the confidence between the two did not appear to be complete, since the wife was either very reticent about her husband's past life, or else, as seemed more likely, was imperfectly informed about it. It had also been noted and commented upon by a few observant people that there were signs sometimes of some nerve strain upon the part of Mrs. Douglas, and that she would display acute uneasiness if her absent husband should ever be particularly late in his return. On a quiet countryside, where all gossip is welcome, this weakness of the lady of the manor-house did not pass without remark, and it bulked larger upon people's memory when the events arose which gave it a very special significance. There was yet another individual whose residence under that roof was, it is true, only an intermittent one, but whose presence at the time of the strange happenings which will now be narrated brought his name prominently before the public. This was Cecil James Barker of Hills Lodge, Hampstead. Cecil Barker's tall, loose-jointed figure was a familiar one in the main street of Burlstone Village, for he was a frequent and welcome visitor at the manor house. He was the more noticed as being the only friend of the past unknown life of Mr. Douglas, who was ever seen in his new English surroundings. Barker was himself an undoubted Englishman, but by his remarks it was clear that he had first known Douglas in America, and had there lived on intimate terms with him. He appeared to be a man of considerable wealth, and was reputed to be a bachelor. In age he was rather younger than Douglas, forty-five at the most, a tall, straight, broad-chested fellow with a clean-shaved, prize-fighter face, thick, strong, black eyebrows, and a pair of masterful black eyes which might, even without the aid of his very capable hands, clear away for him through a hostile crowd. He neither rode nor shot, but spent his days in wandering round the old village with his pipe in his mouth, or in driving with his host, or in his absence with his hostess, over the beautiful countryside. "'An easy-going, free-handed gentleman,' said Ames the butler. "'But my word, I'd rather not be that man that crossed him.' He was cordial and intimate with Douglas, and he was no less friendly with his wife, 
a friendship which more than once seemed to cause some irritation to the husband, so that even the servants were able to perceive his annoyance. Such was the third person who was one of the family when the catastrophe occurred. As to the other denizens of the old building, it will suffice out of a large household to mention the prim, respectable, and capable Ames, and Mrs. Allen, a buxom and cheerful person who relieved the lady of some of her household cares. The six other servants in the house bear no relation to the events of the night of January 6th. It was at 11.45 that the first alarm reached the small local police station in charge of Sergeant Wilson of the Sussex Constabulary. Cecil Barker, much excited, had rushed up to the door and peeled furiously upon the bell. A terrible tragedy had occurred at the manor house, and John Douglas had been murdered. That was the breathless burden of his message. He had hurried back to the house, followed within a few minutes by the police sergeant, who arrived at the scene of the crime a little after twelve o'clock, after taking prompt steps to warn the county authorities that something serious was afoot. On reaching the manor house, the sergeant had found the drawbridge down, the windows lighted up, and the whole household in a state of wild confusion and alarm. The white-faced servants were huddling together in the hall, with the frightened butler wringing his hands in the doorway. Only Cecil Barker seemed to be master of himself and his emotions. He had opened the door which was nearest to the entrance, and he had beckoned the sergeant to follow him. At that moment there arrived Dr. Wood, a brisk and capable general practitioner from the village. The three men entered the fatal room together, while the horror-stricken butler followed at their heels, closing the door behind him to shut out the terrible scene from the maid's servants. The dead man lay on his back, sprawling with outstretched limbs in the center of the room. He was clad only in a pink dressing gown, which covered his nightclothes. There were carpet slippers on his bare feet. The doctor knelt beside him and held down the hand lamp which had stood on the table. One glance at the victim was enough to show the healer that his presence could be dispensed with. The man had been horribly injured. Lying across his chest was a curious weapon, a shotgun with the barrel sawed off a foot in front of the triggers. It was clear that this had been fired at close range and that he had received the whole charge in the face, blowing his head almost to pieces. The triggers had been wired together so as to make the simultaneous discharge more destructive. The country policeman was unnerved and troubled by the tremendous responsibility which had come so suddenly upon him. "'We will touch nothing until my superiors arrive,' he said in a hushed voice, staring in horror at the dreadful head. "'Nothing's been touched up to now.' "'said Cecil Barker. "'I'll answer for that. "'You'll see it all exactly as I found it. "'When was that?' "'The sergeant had drawn out his notebook. "'It was just half-past eleven. "'I had not yet begun to undress, "'and I was sitting by the fire in my bedroom "'when I heard the report. "'It was not very loud. "'It seemed to be muffled. "'I rushed down. "'I don't suppose it was thirty seconds "'before I was in the room. "'Was the door open?' "'Yes, it was open. "'Poor Douglas was lying as you see him. "'His bedroom candle was burning on the table.' "'It was I who lit the lamp some minutes afterward. "'Did you see no one?' "'No. "'I heard Mrs. Douglas coming down the stair behind me, "'and I rushed out to prevent her from seeing this dreadful sight. "'Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, came and took her away. "'Ames had arrived, and we ran back into the room once more. "'I've heard that the drawbridge is kept up all night. "'Yes, it was up until I lowered it. "'Then how could any murder have got away? "'It's out of the question.' "'Mr. Douglas must have shot himself.' "'That was our first idea. "'But see?' "'Barker drew aside the curtain "'and showed that the long, diamond-paned window "'was open to its full extent. "'And look at this.' "'He held the lamp down "'and illuminated a smudge of blood "'like the mark of a boot sole upon the wooden sill. 
"'Someone has stood there and getting out. "'You mean that someone waded across the moat?' "'Exactly. "'Then, if you were in a room within half a minute of the crime, "'he must have been in the water at that very moment. "'I have not a doubt of it. "'I wish to heaven that I'd rushed to the window. "'But the curtain screened it, as you can see, "'so it never occurred to me. "'Then I heard the step of Mrs. Douglas, "'and I could not let her enter the room. "'It would have been too horrible.' "'Horrible enough!' said the doctor, "'looking at the shattered head "'and the terrible marks which surrounded it. "'I've never seen such injuries "'since the Burlstone Railway smash.' "'But I say,' remarked the police sergeant, "'whose slow, bucolic common sense "'was still pondering the open window, "'it's all very well you're saying "'that a man escaped by wading his moat, "'but what I ask you is, "'how did he ever get into the house at all "'if the bridge was up?' "'Ah, that's the question,' said Barker. "'At what time was it raised?' "'It was nearly six o'clock,' said Ames, the butler. "'I've heard,' said the sergeant, "'that it was usually raised at sunset. "'That would be closer to half-past four than six at this time of year.' "'Mrs. Douglas had visitors to tea,' said Ames. "'I couldn't raise it until they went. "'Then I wound it up myself.' "'Well, then it comes to this,' said the sergeant. "'If anyone came from outside, if they did,' "'They must have got in across the bridge before six "'and been hiding ever since "'until Mr. Douglas came into the room after eleven. "'That is so,' remarked Barker. "'Mr. Douglas went around the house every night, "'the last thing before he turned in, "'to see that the lights were right. "'That brought him in here. "'The man was waiting and shot him. "'Then he got away through the window "'and left his gun behind him. "'That's how I read it, "'for nothing else will fit the facts.' "'The sergeant picked up a card "'which lay beside the dead man on the floor.' The initials V.V., and under them the number 341, were rudely scrawled in ink upon it. "'What's this?' he asked, holding it up. Barker looked at it with curiosity. "'I've never noticed it before,' he said. "'The murderer must have left it behind him.' "'V.V., 341. I can make no sense of that.' The sergeant kept turning it over in his big fingers. "'What's V.V.? Somebody's initials, maybe.' "'What have you got there, Dr. Wood?' "'It was a good-sized hammer "'which had been lying on the rug in front of the fireplace, "'a substantial, workmanlike hammer. "'Cecil Barker pointed to a box of brass-headed nails "'upon the mantelpiece. "'Mr. Douglas was altering the pictures yesterday,' he said. "'I saw him myself, standing upon that chair "'and fixing the big picture above it. "'That accounts for the hammer.' "'We'd best put it back on the rug where we found it,' "'said the sergeant, scratching his puzzled head in his perplexity.' "'It'll want the best brains in the force to get to the bottom of this thing. "'It'll be a London job before it's finished.' "'He raised the hand lamp and walked slowly around the room. "'Hello!' he cried, excitedly, drawing the window curtain to one side. "'What time were these curtains drawn?' "'When the lamps were lit,' said the butler. "'That would be shortly after four. "'Someone had been hiding here, sure enough.' "'He held down the light, and the marks of muddy boots were very visible in the corner.' "'I'm bound to say this bears out your theory, Mr. Barker. "'It looks as if the man got into the house after four when the curtains were drawn, "'and before six when the bridge was raised. "'He slipped into this room because it was the first that he saw. "'There was no other place where he could hide, so he popped in behind his curtain. "'That all seems clear enough. "'It is likely that his main idea was to burgle the house, "'but Mr. Douglas chanced to come upon him, so he murdered him and escaped.' "'That's how I read it,' said Barker. "'But I say,' "'Aren't we wasting precious time? "'Couldn't we start out and scout the country "'before the fellow gets away?' 
"'The sergeant considered for a moment. "'There's no trains before six in the morning, "'so he can't get away by rail. "'If he goes by a road with his legs all dripping, "'it's odds that someone will notice him. "'Anyhow, I can't leave here myself until I'm relieved, "'but I think none of you should go "'until we see more clearly how we all stand.' "'The doctor had taken the lamp "'and was narrowly scrutinizing the body. "'What's this mark?' he asked. "'Could this have any connection with the crime?' The dead man's right arm was thrust out from his dressing gown and exposed as high as the elbow. About halfway up the forearm was a curious brown design, a triangle inside a circle, standing out in vivid relief upon the lard-colored skin. "'It's not tattooed,' said the doctor, peering through his glasses. "'I've never seen anything like it. The man has been branded at some time as they brand cattle. What's the meaning of this?' "'I don't profess to know the meaning of it,' said Cecil Barker. "'but I have seen the mark on Douglas many times this last ten years.' "'And so have I,' said the butler. "'Many a time when the master has rolled up his sleeves, "'I've noticed that very mark. "'I've often wondered what it could be. "'Then it has nothing to do with a crime anyhow,' said the sergeant. "'But it's a rum thing all the same. "'Everything about this case is rum.' "'Well, what is it now?' "'The butler had given an exclamation of astonishment "'and was pointing at the dead man's outstretched hand. "'They've taken his wedding ring!' "'He gasped. "'What?' "'Yes, indeed. "'Master always wore his plain gold wedding ring "'on the little finger of his left hand. "'That ring with the rough nugget on it was above it, "'and the twisted snake ring on the third finger. "'There's the nugget, and there's the snake, "'but the wedding ring is gone.' "'He's right,' said Barker. "'Do you tell me,' said the sergeant, "'that the wedding ring was below the other?' "'Always.' "'Then the murderer, or whoever it was, First took off this ring you call the nugget ring, then the wedding ring, and afterwards put the nugget ring back again. That's what it looks like. The worthy country policeman shook his head. Seems to me, the sooner we get London on to this case, the better, said he. White Mason's a smart man. No local job's ever been too much for White Mason. It won't be long now before he's here to help us, but I expect we'll have to look to London before we're through. "'Anyhow, I'm not ashamed to say that it is a deal too thick for the likes of me.' "'We'll return with Chapter 4, right after these sponsor messages. "'Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. "'Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? "'Well, why didn't you say so? "'Just download the Priceline app right now "'and save up to 60% on hotels. "'So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, "'Go Kevin! "'Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. "'You never have to miss a trip ever again.' So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At three in the morning, the chief Sussex detective arrived from headquarters in a light dog cart behind a breathless trotter. By the 5.40 train in the morning, he had sent his message to Scotland Yard, and he was at the Burlstone station at 12 o'clock to welcome us. White Mason was a quiet, comfortable-looking person in a loose tweed suit, with a clean-shaved, ruddy face, a stoutish body, and powerful bandy legs adorned with gaiters, looking like a small farmer, a retired gamekeeper, or anything upon earth except a very favorable specimen of the provincial criminal officer. "'A real downright snorter, Mr. MacDonald,' he kept repeating. "'We'll have the pressmen down like flies when they understand it. I'm hoping we will get our work done before they get poking their noses into it, messing up all the trails.' "'There's been nothing like this that I can remember. "'There are some bits that will come home to you, Mr. Holmes, or I am mistaken. "'And you also, Dr. Watson, 
"'for the medicos will have a word to say before we finish. "'Your room is at the Westville Arms. "'There's no other place, but I hear that it is clean and good. "'The man will carry your bags. "'This way, gentlemen, if you please.' "'He was a very bustling and genial person, this Sussex detective. "'In ten minutes we had all found our quarters. "'In ten more we were seated in the parlor of the inn "'and being treated to a rapid sketch of those events "'which have been outlined in the previous chapter.' MacDonald made an occasional note, while Holmes sat absorbed, with the expression of a surprised and reverent admiration with which the botanist surveys the rare and precious bloom. "'Remarkable,' he said, when the story was unfolded. "'Most remarkable. I can hardly recall any case where the features have been more peculiar.' "'I thought you would say so, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason in great delight. "'We're well up with the times in Sussex.' "'I've told you how matters were, up to the time when I took over from Sergeant Wilson between three and four this morning. "'My word! I made the old mare go. "'But I need not have been in such a hurry, as it turned out, for there was nothing immediate that I could do. "'Sergeant Wilson had all the facts. I checked them and considered them, and maybe added a few of my own.' "'What were they?' asked Holmes eagerly. "'Well, I first had the hammer examined. There was Dr. Wood there to help me.' "'we found no signs of violence upon it. "'I was hoping that if Mr. Douglas defended himself with the hammer, "'he might have left his mark upon the murderer "'before he dropped it on the mat. "'But there was no stain.' Well, "'That, of course, proves nothing at all,' "'remarked Inspector MacDonald. "'There has been many a hammer murder "'and no trace on the hammer.' "'Quite so. "'It doesn't prove it wasn't used. "'But there might have been stains, "'and that would have helped us. "'As a matter of fact, there were none. "'Then I examined the gun.' They were buckshot cartridges, and, as Sergeant Wilson pointed out, the triggers were wired together so that, if you pulled on the hinder one, both barrels were discharged. Whoever fixed that up had made up his mind that he was going to take no chances of missing his man. The sawed gun was not more than two feet long. One could carry it easily under one's coat. There was no complete maker's name, but the printed letters P-E-N were on the fluting between the barrels, and the rest of the name had been cut off by the saw. "'A big P with a flourish above it, E and N smaller?' asked Holmes. "'Exactly. "'Pennsylvania Small Arms Company, well-known American firm,' said Holmes. "'White Mason gazed at my friend as the little village practitioner looks at the Harley Street specialist, "'who by a word can solve the difficulties that perplex him. "'That is very helpful, Mr. Holmes. No doubt you are right. "'Wonderful. Do you carry the names of all gunmakers in the world in your memory?' Holmes dismissed the subject with a wave. "'No doubt it is an American shotgun,' White Mason continued. "'I seem to have read that a sawed-off shotgun is a weapon used in some parts of America. Apart from the name upon the barrel, the idea had occurred to me. There is some evidence, then, that this man who entered the house and killed its master was an American.' MacDonald shook his head. "'Man, you're surely traveling over fast,' said he. "'I've heard no evidence yet that any stranger was ever in the house at all.' "'The open window, the blood on the sill, the queer card, the marks of boots in the corner, the gun. "'Nothing there that could not have been arranged. "'Mr. Douglas was an American, or had lived long in America. "'So had Mr. Barker. "'You don't need to import an American from outside in order to account for American doings.' "'Ames, the butler? Oh, "'What about him? Is he reliable?' Ten years with Sir Charles Chandos, as solid as a rock.' He's been with Douglas ever since he took the manor house five years ago. He's never seen a gun of this sort in the house. 
The gun was made to conceal. That's why the barrels were sawed. It would fit into any box. How could he swear there was no such gun in the house? Well, anyhow, he'd never seen one. MacDonald shook his obstinate scotch head. I'm not convinced yet that there was ever anyone in the house, said he. I'm asking you to reconsider. I'm asking you to consider what it involves if you suppose that this gun was ever brought into the house and that all these strange things were done by a person from outside. Oh, man, it's just inconceivable. It's clean against common sense. I put it to you, Mr. Holmes, judging it by what we've heard. Well, state your case, Mr. Mack, said Holmes in his most judicial style. All right. The man is not a burglar, supposing that he ever existed. The ring business and the card point to premeditated murder for some private reason. Very good. Here is a man who slips into a house with the deliberate intention of committing murder. He knows, if he knows anything, that he will have a difficulty in making his escape, as the house is surrounded with water. What weapon would he choose? You would say the most silent in the world. Then he could hope when the deed was done to slip quickly from the window, to wade the moat, and to get away at leisure. That's understandable. But is it understandable he should go out of his way to bring with him the most noisy weapon he could select, knowing well that it will fetch every human being in the house to the spot as quick as they can run, and that it is all odds that he will be seen before he can get across the moat? Is that credible, Mr. Holmes? Well, you put the case strongly, my friend replied thoughtfully. It certainly needs a good deal of justification. May I ask, Mr. White Mason, whether you examined the farther side of the moat at once to see if there were any signs of the man having climbed out from the water? There were no signs, Mr. Holmes, but it is a stone ledge, and one could hardly expect them. No tracks or marks? None. Ha! Would there be any objection, Mr. White Mason, to our going down to the house at once? There may possibly be some small point which might be suggestive. I was going to propose it, Mr. Holmes, but I thought it well to put you in touch with all the facts before we go. I suppose if anything should strike you... White Mason looked doubtfully at the amateur. I have worked with Mr. Holmes before, said Inspector MacDonald. He plays the game. My own idea of a game, at any rate, said Holmes, with a smile. I go into a case to help the ends of justice and the work of the police. If I've ever separated myself from the official force, it is because they have first separated themselves from me. I have no wish ever to score at their expense. At the same time, Mr. White Mason, I claim the right to work in my own way and give my results at my own time. Complete, rather than in stages. I am sure we're honored by your presence and to show you all we know, said White Mason cordially. Come along, Dr. Watson, and when the time comes, we'll all hope for a place in your book. We walked down the quaint village street with a row of pollarded elms on each side of it. Just beyond were two ancient stone pillars, weather-stained and lichen-blotched, bearing upon their summits a shapeless something which had once been the rampant lion of Capus of Burlstone. A short walk along the winding drive with such sward and oaks around it as one only sees in rural England. Then a sudden turn, and the long, low, Jacobean house of dingy, liver-colored brick lay before us, with an old-fashioned garden of cut yews on each side of it. As we approached it, there was the wooden drawbridge and the beautiful broad moat as still and luminous as quicksilver in the cold winter sunshine. Three centuries had flowed past the old manor house, centuries of births and of hope-comings, of country dances and of the meetings of fox-hunters, 
Strange that now in its old age this dark business should have cast its shadow upon the venerable walls. And yet those strange, peaked roofs and quaint, overhung gables were a fitting covering to grim and terrible intrigue. As I looked at the deep-set windows and the long sweep of the dull-colored, water-lapped front, I felt that no more fitting scene could be set for such a tragedy. "'Over there, that's the window,' said White Mason. "'That one on the immediate right of the drawbridge. It's open just as it was found last night.' "'It looks rather narrow for a man to pass.' "'Well, it wasn't a fat man. You're right. We don't need your deductions, Mr. Holmes, to tell us that. But you or I could squeeze through all right.' Holmes walked to the edge of the moat and looked across. Then he examined the stone ledge and the grass border beyond it. "'I've had a good look, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason. "'There's nothing there, no sign that anyone has landed. But why should he leave any sign?' "'Exactly. Why should he? Is the water always turbid?' "'Generally about this color. The stream brings down the clay.' "'How deep is it?' "'About two feet at each side and three in the middle.' "'So we can put aside all idea of the man having been drowned in crossing.' "'No, a child couldn't be drowned in it.' "'We walked across the drawbridge "'and were admitted by a quaint, gnarled, dried-up person "'who was the butler, Ames. "'The poor old fellow was white and quivering from the shock. "'The village sergeant, a tall, formal, melancholy man, "'still held his vigil in the room of fate. "'The doctor had departed. "'Anything fresh, Sergeant Wilson?' asked White Mason. "'Now, sir, then you can go home. You've had enough. We could send for you if we want you. The butler had better wait outside. Tell him to warn Mr. Cecil Barker, Mrs. Douglas, and the housekeeper that we may want a word with them presently. Now, gentlemen, perhaps you will allow me to give you the views I have formed first, and then you will be able to arrive at your own.' He impressed me, this country specialist. He had a solid grip of fact and a cool, clear, common-sense brain— which should take him some way in his profession. Holmes listened to him intently, with no sign of that impatience which the official exponent too often produced. Is it suicide, or is it murder? That's our first question, gentlemen, is it not? If it were suicide, then we have to believe that this man began by taking off his wedding ring and concealing it, that he then came down here in his dressing gown, trampled mud into a corner behind the curtain in order to give the idea someone had waited for him, opened the window, put blood on the sill, "'We can surely dismiss that,' said MacDonald. "'So I think. Suicide is out of the question. "'Then a murder has been done. "'What we have to determine is whether it was done by someone outside or inside the house. "'Well, let's hear the argument. "'There are considerable difficulties both ways, and yet one or the other it must be. "'We will suppose first that some person or persons inside the house did the crime.' They got this man down here at a time when everything was still, and yet no one was asleep. They then did the deed with the queerest and noisiest weapon in the world, so as to tell everyone what had happened. A weapon that was never seen in the house before. That doesn't seem like a very likely start, does it? No, it doesn't. Well, then, everyone has agreed that after the alarm was given, only a minute at the most had passed before the whole household, not Mr. Cecil Barker alone, though he claims to have been the first, but Ames and all of them were on the spot. Do you tell me that in the time the guilty person managed to make footmarks in the corner, open the window, mark the sill with blood, take the wedding ring off the dead man's finger, and all the rest of it? That's impossible. You put it very clearly, said Holmes. 
"'and I'm inclined to agree with you.' "'Well, then, we're driven back to the theory "'that it was done by someone from outside. "'We are still faced with some big difficulties, "'but anyhow they have ceased to be impossibilities. "'The man got into the house between 4.30 and 6, "'that is to say, between dusk "'and the time when the bridge was raised. "'There had been some visitors, "'and the door was open, "'so there was nothing to prevent him. "'He may have been a common burglar, "'or he may have had some private grudge "'against Mr. Douglas. "'Since Mr. Douglas has spent most of his life in America, "'and this shotgun seems to be an American weapon, "'it would seem that the private grudge "'is the more likely theory. "'He slipped into this room "'because it was the first he came to, "'and he hid behind the curtain. "'There he remained until past eleven at night.' At that time, Mr. Douglas entered the room. It was a short interview, and if there were any interview at all, for Mrs. Douglas declares that her husband had not left her more than a few minutes before she heard the shot. "'The candle shows that,' said Holmes. "'Exactly. The candle, which was a new one, is not burned more than half an inch. He must have placed it on the table before he was attacked, otherwise, of course, it would have fallen when he fell. This shows that he was not attacked the instant that he entered the room.' When Mr. Barker arrived, the candle was lit, and the lamp was out. That's all clear enough. Well, now we can reconstruct things on those lines. Mr. Douglas enters the room. He puts down the candle. A man appears from behind the curtain. He is armed with this gun. He demands the wedding ring. Heaven only knows why, but so it must have been. Mr. Douglas gave it up. That either in cold blood or in the course of a struggle... "'Douglas may have gripped the hammer that was found upon the mat. "'He shot Douglas in this horrible way. "'He dropped his gun, and also it would seem this queer card, VV341, whatever that may mean. "'And he made his escape through the window "'and across the moat at the very moment "'when Cecil Barker was discovering the crime. "'How's that, Mr. Holmes?' Uh, "'Very interesting, but just a little unconvincing.' "'Man, it would be absolute nonsense if it wasn't that anything else is even worse,' cried MacDonald. "'Somebody killed a man, and whoever it was, I could clearly prove to you that he should have done it some other way. What does he mean by allowing his retreat to be cut off like that? What does he mean by using a shotgun when silence was his one chance of escape? Come, Mr. Holmes, it's up to you to give us a lead, since you say Mr. White Mason's theory is unconvincing.' Holmes had sat intently observant during this long discussion, missing no word that was said, with his keen eyes darting to right and left, and his forehead wrinkled with speculation. "'I should like a few more facts before I get so far as a theory, Mr. Mack,' said he, kneeling down beside the body. "'Dear me! These injuries are really appalling. Can we have the butler in for a moment? Ames, I understand that you've often seen this unusual mark.' "'a branded triangle inside a circle upon Mr. Douglas's forearm?' "'Frequently, sir. "'You've never heard any speculation as to what it meant?' "'No, sir. "'It must have caused great pain when it was inflicted. "'It's undoubtedly a burn. "'Now I observe, Ames, that there is a small piece of plaster "'at the angle of Mr. Douglas's jaw. "'Did you observe that in life?' "'Yes, sir. "'He cut himself in shaving yesterday morning.' "'Suggestive?' "'Did you ever know him to cut himself in shaving before?' "'Not for a very long time, sir. "'It may, of course, be a mere coincidence, "'or it may point to some nervousness "'which would indicate that he had reason to apprehend danger. "'Had you noticed anything unusual in his conduct yesterday, Ames?' "'Well, yes, it struck me that he was a little restless and excited, sir. "'Ha! 
"'The attack may not have been entirely unexpected, then. "'We do seem to make a little progress, do we not? "'Perhaps you would rather do the questioning, Mr. Mack. "'No, Mr. Holmes, it's in better hands than mine. "'Well, then, we will pass to this card, BB341. "'It is rough cardboard. "'Have you any sort of this stuff in the house?' "'I don't think so.' "'Holmes walked across to the desk "'and dabbed a little ink from each bottle onto the blotting paper.' "'It was not printed in this room,' he said. "'This is black ink, and the other purplish. "'It was done by a thick pen, and these are fine. "'No, it was done elsewhere, I should say. "'Can you make anything of the inscription names?' "'No, sir, nothing. "'What do you think, Mr. Mack?' "'It gives me the impression of a secret society of some sort, "'the same with this badge upon the forearm.' "'That's my idea, too,' said White Mason.' "'Well, we can adopt it as a working hypothesis "'and then see how far our difficulties disappear. "'An agent from such a society makes his way into the house, "'waits for Mr. Douglas, "'blows his head nearly off with his weapon, "'and escapes by wading the moat "'after leaving a card beside the dead man, "'which will, when mentioned in the papers, "'tell other members of the society that vengeance has been done. "'That all hangs together. "'But why this gun, of all weapons?' "'Exactly. "'And why the missing ring?' "'Quite so. "'And why no arrest? "'It's past two now. "'I take it for granted that since dawn "'every constable within forty miles "'has been looking out for a wet stranger.' "'That is so, Mr. Holmes. "'Well, unless he has a burrow close by "'or a change of clothes ready, "'they can hardly miss him. "'And yet they have missed him up there now.' "'Holmes had gone to the window "'and was examining with his lens "'the blood mark on the sill. "'It's clearly the tread of a shoe. "'It is remarkably broad.' "'A splayfoot, one would say. "'Curious, because so far as one can trace any footmark in this mud-stained corner, "'one would say it was a more shapely sole. "'However, they are certainly very indistinct. "'What's under this side table?' "'Mr. Douglas's dumbbells,' said Ames. "'Dumbbell? There's only one. Where's the other?' "'I don't know, Mr. Holmes. There may have been only one. "'I've not noticed them for months.' "'One dumbbell,' Holmes said seriously, but his remarks were interrupted by a sharp knock at the door. A tall, sunburned, capable-looking, clean-shaved man looked in at us. I had no difficulty in guessing that it was the Cecil Barker of whom I had heard. His masterful eyes traveled quickly with a questioning glance from face to face. "'Sorry to interrupt your consultation,' said he, "'but you should hear the latest news.' "'An arrest?' "'No such luck.' "'but they found his bicycle. "'The fellow left his bicycle behind him. "'Come and have a look. "'It is within a hundred yards of the hall door. "'We found three or four grooms and idlers "'standing in the drive inspecting a bicycle "'which had been drawn out from a clump of evergreens "'in which it had been concealed. "'It was a well-used Rudge Whitworth, "'splashed as from a considerable journey. "'There was a saddlebag with spanner and oil can, "'but no clues to the owner. "'It would be a grand help to the police.' "'said the inspector, if these things were numbered and registered. "'But we must be thankful for what we've got. "'If we can't find where he went to, "'at least we are likely to get where he came from. "'But what in the name of all that is wonderful "'made the fellow leave it behind? "'And how in the world has he got away without it? "'I don't seem to get a gleam of light in the case, Mr. Holmes.' "'Don't we?' my friend answered thoughtfully. "'I wonder.' Join us next week, Sunday night, for two more chapters from The Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle.
Please do send us a review for 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories and share our show with others. That's all we can ask. Actually, there is one other thing we can ask. It is December, and it's Christmas time, and we do a lot of work here at 1001 to bring all kinds of stories, literature, original, action, history, to our listeners. We have a Patreon site where people contribute to us on a monthly basis, and we appreciate those contributions very, very much. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001. Please do check it out, and please do consider supporting us through 2022. I know that all of us get requests for support from every corner imaginable. The one thing about what we're doing here is that it's all family-rated, and it's all mostly history and literature. And with all that, we're broadening knowledge and improving lives. There's no better way to say thank you than by arranging to send us a little monthly contribution. Most people give just about the price of a cup of blended coffee every month, and that helps us in a big way. So think about us this December, this Christmas time, and maybe make a decision to help a good podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you all for being the great fans that you are. We'll return next Sunday night with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.